The American Civil War was won on the ground, but in order to make it that far, the Union had to rely on a far more treacherous terrain, the ocean. When the Confederate South seceded from the United States and became their own enemy country, the line in the sand was drawn. This is our land, and that is yours. But the water that surrounded these areas became a middle zone, a gray space where, even if the Confederates held the territory, the Union Navy could make their lives hell. And that's exactly what they did. President Abraham Lincoln ordered an immediate blockade by the Union Navy, who rushed south and surrounded the Confederate states, but especially Florida and the Gulf of Mexico. The Confederate states relied on their chief crop, cotton, grown by the enslaved persons whose potential for freedom had sparked the war in the first place. If the blockade could prevent the South from trading, the Confederates would run out of money sooner rather than later. There was only one problem. The Union Navy had maybe 40 ships. In no time at all, forests were being bulldozed by the acre and merchant ships were being refitted with guns and cannons. Reminiscent of the scrappy efforts by the American patriots battling the British just nine decades earlier, the Union took every opportunity to build as much of a fleet, as feeble as it may be, as quickly as possible. The Confederate secession had been looming on the horizon for many years before the official beginning of the war in 1861, but the declaration of war was like a domino fall. One push in Fort Sumter led to a total collapse. But within a year, the Union had built up enough naval support that they charged the southern ports and took cities along the coasts with ease. The Confederates weren't sure where to focus their attacks, so the collapse of their coastal defenses was almost guaranteed. By the end of 1862, just the second year of the war, the southern states were almost completely surrounded by a blockade. Enter the USS Cimarron. Launched in March of 1862, it was a side-wheel steamship, meaning that it was propelled by two huge wheels on both sides of the boat, powered by steam to send them spinning. Side-wheel ships were not the most powerful boats in the Union fleet, but they were armed enough to sit on the blockade and watch the Confederate coasts for ships. Armed by the Philadelphia Navy Yard, the Cimarron began its commission along the St. James River in Virginia. Commanded by Commander Maxwell Woodhull, the Cimarron eventually left Virginia in the summer of 1862, where it joined up with the Southern Blockade. By mid-September of that year, the Cimarron had drifted upriver and put itself directly focused on an important body of water for the Confederate defense, the St. Johns River in Florida. The city of Palatka, right at the corner of that river, was a valuable asset to both troops in the area. Florida was barely involved in the Civil War as our relationship to commerce was so limited, having very little plantations. Only one major battle ever took place in our state, which is a story for another time. But the waters of the Atlantic were so essential to the blockade conflicts, and Florida had so much coast. If the Union was to stay strong in the area, they needed more places like Palatka, off the big bodies of water and along the river to control if things got nasty on the open ocean. The city proper had spent the last several decades enjoying booming growth thanks to tourism. Its location on the river meant many travelers would take riverboats along the St. John's or the Oklawaha and drift down to Palatka for some city life. When the war broke out, Confederate warships replaced the singing riverboats and the mood in the city went grim. The Confederates rushed into the city soon enough, taking up residence among the remaining citizens. Eventually, the USS Cimarron noticed the Confederate troops in Palatka as it patrolled the waters of the St. John's River. 
On October 7th, the Cimarron had its sights set on Palatka. Most of the people in the city fled, leaving only a few civilians and thousands of troops. The Cimarron sent warning shots over the town, echoing nightmarish blasts through the streets of this near-empty city. The remaining citizens were not too frightened, however. The Cimarron's action that day was just the beginning. By the time this chain of events was over, it would quietly become one of the most significant victories by the Confederacy over the Union in the entirety of the Civil War. And it all started in Palatka. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the Battle of Horse Landing, one of the least discussed and most significant battles in Florida during the American Civil War. All that was due to one woman, a Confederate spy named Lola Sanchez, whose family in Palatka wrought chaos upon the Union Navy along the St. John's River. The passing gray clouds of a hurricane's outer bands churned over the St. John's River as I crossed it toward Palatka. The path of this storm, which has been causing havoc across Florida for the last week, had been swerving and changing erratically over the previous few days. As it moved back into the Gulf of Mexico, its disparate rainstorms would pass intermittently overhead. Sometimes it would be raining so hard I couldn't see ten feet out my window. Sometimes, it would be so clear that beautiful yellow streaks cut through the misty blue sky. The gray and rain had made Palatka quiet, and the thin brick roadways that cut through the historic northern district watched silently as I passed them by. On the south side of the town, right by the river, was the main street, still quiet five months after my previous visit, the shops still waiting for pedestrians to return. The north side, however, where the old houses rest, was a new visit for me. The houses are classic old southern houses, their paint mildewing and desaturating over generations. The odd Victorian structures had lost their splendor from a century ago, now living a new life as southern gothic antiques. Cats wandered the cobblestones and dogs slept on porches. The shotgun houses with their elevated structures were sinking back to the earth, their floorboards bending under the years of use. Florida is the South, but the North District of Palatka felt very Southern in the most classic sense, with neighbors watching the rain from rocking chairs and waving to me behind my half-rolled-down window. After weeks without a proper road trip, Palatka was a welcome visit to a forgotten corner. Back in October of 1862, things were not quite so pleasant. The citizens were at risk and had no clue what the Union gunboat was intending to do. The Union had no qualms with the people who lived in the city necessarily. They were angry that troops were living within. It was a natural assumption that the Cimarron would take the city by force as they believed it was a Confederate stronghold. They very well may have fired on the city if not for a woman named Mary Boyd. The wife of a timber baron named Robert Boyd, Mary was one of the richest women in town thanks to income from her spouse. Robert was the sheriff and tax collector for the city, and the influences of the Boyds was profound. Many important people of Palatka were nervous they'd be captured by the Union, including Florida's first governor, William Dunn Mosley, who settled in Palatka after he retired from the governorship in 1849. 
But the Boyds remained. Mary managed to get in touch with the commander of the Cimarron, presumably Commander Woodhall. She begged them not to encroach on the city with violence. She told them they were peaceful, not part of the war, and the Cimarron obliged. A peace was made, in a sense, between the gunship and Palatka. Union troops entered the city without additional violence, and none of the citizens of Palatka were taken in as prisoners. Yet. Within two months, the Cimarron was back in Philadelphia, and the Union troops remained. The Confederates had lost this segment of the St. John's River. Though war broke apart the city's bustling industry, the Union troops left a strange energy in the air. They were occupying a southern city, and even though this part of Florida was not necessarily involved in the conflict, the northern troops were quite literally foreigners to this place. They were suspicious of the citizens around them, everyday folks who lived along a vital military naval vein. The citizens were, in equal measure, suspicious of the troops. The pot began to boil. Some residents of Palatka left home and joined up with the Confederates. The Union began to suspect certain townsfolk of secretly spying on behalf of the enemy. The Union comfortably held St. Augustine a few miles northeast of Palatka, and anything important they did in Florida would be connected through that old city. When the troops in Palatka began to suspect sabotage by the residents, they would arrest them and send them up the river to the Castillo de San Marcos, which the Union called Fort Marion. The prisoners were held there throughout the war. One such man who was arrested for spying was a Cuban immigrant named Don Maurizio Sanchez. An elderly man fraught with illness, Don Sanchez was arrested by Union troops on the charge of spying for the enemy. He left his young family and sick wife on the eastern shores of the St. John's River in Palatka. But his daughters, the Sanchez sisters, would have their revenge. The fear of Confederate spies in Palatka was not unfounded. The Union was facing that sort of threat across the war, but most especially in Washington, D.C. A huge spy network had been set up in the city within the first year, thanks to Virginia's governor at the time, John Letcher, who had previously been a congressman. Confederate sympathizers in the city and along the Potomac set up a series of connections wherein messages would be passed from the city over the river and then to citizens who would clandestinely get messages to the resting Confederate troops. Women were commonly used in this ruse, acting like farmers traveling through the Union line, and once across, they would charge to Confederate bases to share the information. This led to several major victories by the Confederate armies along the Potomac, as their access allowed them to surprise the Union. Scouts and spies all across Virginia kept the Confederate campaign alive. That's not to say the Union didn't have spies themselves. Founded by Alan Pinkerton, the creator of the infamous Pinkerton Detective Agency, the Union had a network of counterintelligence operatives that popped up in response to the Confederate effort. Pinkerton had earned respect throughout his detective work, but his counterintelligence turned out poor results. His operatives would often gather numbers of troops that were far inflated, and this led to poor planning by Union leaders. Pinkerton himself went undercover in the South, attempting to pass as a major in the Confederate Army. He was quickly found out and was nearly killed. He was perhaps a better detective than he was a spy. Nevertheless, the intelligence service that he founded at that time would later go on to become the U.S. Secret Service after the assassination of President Lincoln. Florida, being so distant from the main fighting of the war, was obviously not a major center of spying on the enemy. 
Still, the Union arrested folks in Palatka for spying, including Don Maurizio Sanchez, despite him being a sickly old man. I can find no evidence whether or not he actually did spy for the Confederates. The Union suspected that he did, so they arrested him. Concerned that there were more spies hiding, the Union would frequently do checks of civilian homes, coming in and searching for any evidence that the citizens were working with the enemy. The Sanchez household was one such location. With their father gone, their brother in the Confederate Army, and their mother sick in bed, the three Sanchez sisters, Lola, Panchita, and Eugenia, needed to care for their homestead. The house checks by soldiers became so frequent that the sisters felt it was only appropriate to be a touch friendly with the occupying force. So, they invited them in for food and music, and the troops gladly accepted. The girls would play guitar and sing, feed the troops Cuban food, and provide friendly company for the men in the midst of a war. The Union soldiers were far too pleased with the hospitality to consider, for a moment, that there were ulterior motives in the Sanchez household. They would relax all night long and they'd chat about their lives, but more importantly, about the war. And Lola Sanchez listened. Months pass and Lola has gained a comfortable reputation with the soldiers. They liked her and her sisters and they trusted them. Their trust was at last betrayed. You see, the area between St. Augustine and Palatka still had Confederate troops, meaning the St. John's River was not a passable connection between the major cities in this region. With the Confederate loss at Gettysburg the previous summer, the Southern troops were on the ropes, looking for any leeway into keeping their hopes alive. The Union would cut off their opportunities anywhere they could and sever the war for good. The real threat was in the form of Captain John Jackson Dickinson, commander of the 2nd Florida Cavalry. He had spent most of the war raising hell in Central Florida, keeping Union supplies short and holding the Confederate line wherever he could. He was only a few miles from Palatka on the night of May 21st, 1864. The Union, knowing Dickinson was a major threat to their efforts in Florida, planned to stop him that night. They would march from Palatka, ambush the Dickinson camp, destroy the cavalry, and regain total control of this part of Florida. It was a perfect plan, with a gunboat called the Columbine ready to aid in the ground ambush. Dickinson was just west of the river in an area that was called Horse Landing, behind a line of trees that blocked his view. That is where the Union would converge on the Confederate cavalry and crush their hold on the land west of the St. John's. It was foolproof. No one suspected Lola Sanchez. She was just across the St. John's from the encampment, a trip over the water and she'd be at the Confederate camp, ready to warn them of the Union ambush. Today, the looming dangers that likely haunted Lola that night have turned suburban. Her destination, Horse Landing, where the Confederates would launch their counter-assault, is not accessible to the public today. It is on the property of a private school for boys just across the street from the infamous Rodman Reservoir that our friend Marjorie Harris Carr fought so desperately to tear down. Across the water from Horse Landing, likely where the Union soldiers were mounting their ambush across the river, there are a pair of cities, Wilaka and Satsuma. Both are very small, their communities curving with the natural flow of the river and covered in golf cart crossing signs. These areas are prominent for retirees, and many of the houses I passed on my trip had golf carts sitting out front. This was once a battlefield, a point of ambush, but the locals have made it their own haven on the riverside. A quick side note before I move on. I saw two signs in this area that I can't not tell you about. 
The first was at the Wilaka Women's Center. In bold letters, it read simply, Bingo. Cancelled. No further details. The second was an old-fashioned school bus stop with a wooden structure for kids to sit under, in rain, perhaps. Hanging right below the roof was a very old sign that read, in all caps, DRUGS. NO! With an exclamation mark. Anyway, I digress. Lola knew the ambush was coming and wanted to get the information to Dickinson before the Union could surprise him. She was in East Palatka, on the other side of the river, which is today farmland, recently drudged up and ready for new planting. As her sisters, Panchita and Eugenia, continued to entertain the soldiers they held in their homes, Lola set out in the dark to make the trek through the wilderness to find Dickinson's camp. She rode her horse from her home to the river, with many accounts sharing that she was pushing her horse to its absolute limit. A mile and a half later, she arrived at the ferryman on the river, who kept her horse as she took his boat. She rode down the St. John's to the banks of the Confederate camp. There, she was brought to the captain where she informed him of the Union ambush. Grateful for her efforts, he roused his men and prepared the counter-assault. Lola crossed the river, returned to her horse, and arrived back home. The Union soldiers were still there, unaware of Lola's two-hour absence. Her mission was done without a hitch. Dickinson readjusted his position in the woods, closer to a clearing now, horse landing, where he mounted cannons and guns for the encroaching enemy. A Union gunboat was drifting up the river loaded with supplies to support the forthcoming ambush. The Confederates were waiting and launched a surprise assault on Union holdings. Their weapons ripped through the wheels of the Union ship, the Columbine, preventing the boat from moving or controlling well on the water. Though the men on the Columbine were able to get a few shots back, the Confederates had the upper hand and destroyed the ship. History is unclear on how many survived and how many were taken prisoner. No Confederates were harmed. Regardless, the Union soldiers were handily defeated. The Confederates looted the weapons and the artillery and eventually burned the Columbine. It sunk to the bottom of the river. In the end, Captain John J. Dickinson had led his cavalry in one of the few instances of Confederate ground troops over a Union Navy boat. In fact, this is the only instance in the American Civil War that a Union boat was ever totally sunk by Confederate ground troops. After that day, May 22, 1864, Lola Sanchez never spied again. To honor the efforts of the Sanchez sisters, the Confederates went on to name a boat the Three Sisters, and their father was eventually released from prison after months of begging from the family. They were reunited as the Confederacy fell, and the South, including Florida, returned to the United States of America. Lola married a former Confederate soldier, Panchita moved north to South Carolina, and the whole family disappears from the history records forever. Lola was buried in Palatka, though the record of her burial did not turn up a solid location that I could visit. Those pieces of information were not preserved over the ensuing century and a half. In fact, the whole story barely survived the decades. John Dickinson is a famous Confederate figure in Florida, one we will eventually return to as his tales crisscross the state. His victory over the Columbine on the St. John's River is well recorded and noted as one of the most important victories in Florida. Lola Sanchez is merely a footnote in the story of Horse Landing. Sometimes she's not mentioned at all. 
One could speculate on the reasons for that, but there's something to be said for the impact of the unknown civilian in our stories. History forgets people like Lola. She was a spy for the enemy, working to uphold the horrible and inhumane ideals that the Confederacy was fighting for. It cannot be denied. She was the sole reason that the Columbine sunk, Union Navy men were captured or killed, and Dickinson added another notch to his victory belt. All those things would not have happened if it wasn't for Lola Sanchez. It's those huge consequences from little moves that fascinate me the most. History remembers the end result, but they don't remember Panchita and Eugenia and Lola singing and making food and waiting. It began with an invitation to dinner and it ended with the sinking of a ship. The connective tissue is one family desperate to have their father return to them. In the end, they got what they wanted. Their story may be a footnote in another person's legend, but the actions of the Sanchez sisters left a mark on Palatka that will never come out. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you're here. If you're brand new to the show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really incredible stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. I'd recommend you check out some other tales about Florida and the Confederacy. We discussed it in our episode about the state flag, and even more so at length in the episode about Florida's state song. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and it means the world to me. People have been doing some amazing work putting five stars on this show. It seriously means the world to me if you could do it as well. I cannot thank you enough. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. I've included some links to further explore the story of Palatka, Lola Sanchez, and Captain J.J. Dickinson. This is one of those stories where the depths of the tale are far greater than we have time to dig into, but you can follow this story in a dozen different directions. If you're interested, I highly recommend that you do. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. Next week... We go for a walk in our own backyard along the famous Florida Scenic Trail. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. And please, drink more water. Have a good week. Take care of yourself.